This episode of Making a Monster is brought to you by The Book of Extinction, extinct animals resurrected for the world's greatest role-playing game. You guys are doing specific monsters from older... It's not specific monsters. It's, uh, it's <laughs> cheats. It is, it oh, is oh different... yeah, cheeses. 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 <laughs> I don't know if that's what you call it. Uh, it's going to be what I call it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's way better. Because a lot of the ways in which the game has created its own lore, its own D&D cryptids, started back in 3rd edition and 3.5. And 5th edition stands at the top of this teetering tower of nonsense that is 50 years old and has given rise to a, a huge variety of things that are just in the game now and have names and wander about the world of D&D in the same way that wandering monsters roam around dungeons. So That peasant railgun. Something like the Quantum Ogre. I loathe the Arrow of Destruction. The False Hydra. Uh, wireless Troll. Larry the Kung <laughs> Fu Kraken. I hate this one so, so much. <laughs> Welcome to Making a Monster, the bite-sized podcast where we look at the monsters in Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop RPGs and discover how they work, why they work, and what they mean. For these episodes, I've assembled a crack team of D&D podcasters from all over the world to track down monsters born of the system itself. I'm Jeremy Vine. I'm a professional dungeon master. My name is Jared Jehoda, and you can find me on any podcast platform under Mid-Level Adventurers. I'm Danilo, the host, producer, editor of Thinking Critically, a D&D discussion podcast where we take a single word or topic and discuss what it means in the D&D and wider TTRPG framework. Hello, I'm Rebecca. And I'm Steven. And we are from a House of Us Broadcasting, Eberron, a Chronicle of Echoes podcast. So let's talk cheese. Uh... <laughs> One of the most persistent of these named exploit monsters is the Peasant Railgun. Have you heard of this? Oh, yes, I have. So <laughs> the idea being you get, you know, a thousand peasants, pay them, you know, coppers, get them to line up. And pass a spear along. Okay, I got this, Steve. You got this one. <laughs> I got this. You got this one. So, rules as written, a round is exactly six seconds. Now, a free action does not necessarily last that long. And everyone gets one free action that they can do during a round. And so you take a bunch of peasants and you hand a bunch of peasants uh, a log or a post or something like that. You get a line of... NPCs, you get um, your hirelings, you get the, the local villagers, whatever it is. I feel that it's usually high-level characters. Low-level characters don't really get a chance to try this. But you get them all in a, a long line, usually about two miles long. And you give the person at the very far end a 10-foot pole. You give them a stick, uh, whatever it is. And then you have them free action pass the log off to the next person in line, which by the laws of physics would say that by the time you get to the end of the row of a pretty long line of peasants that you could probably pay off because you're an adventure, why the heck not? But all of these things happen simultaneously or immediately one after the other, but they're all still bound within that time constraint. They ready their action to pass the stick to the next peasant. 
and it goes all the way along these two miles because in the D&D rules, a turn lasts six seconds. So you can do whatever you like and everybody acts at once. It's just these six seconds are somewhat malleable. But the idea is this stick eventually will reach a velocity uh, that when the peasant at the other end of the line gets it, if they throw it, it will hit with the force of this train, essentially. I think they're saying um, something like the speed of light it'll probably hit at if you've got a, enough peasants and a long enough line. <laughs> that log is going hundreds upon thousands of miles per hour and can feasibly kill anything in one shot. <laughs> so you can accelerate something to obnoxiously fast velocities in a this this six second scope and then the one at the end or the fighter or whoever throws the spear thus creating a massively powerful impactful weapon is the theory <laughs> <laughs> the the corollary of course is if you lined up a bunch of horses on that same trajectory assuming that you have enough skill in horse riding you can dismount and remount in six seconds and travel down an entire line of horses miles long. Just kind of leapfrogging over from one to the other is <laughs> yeah. just scamper through and uh, reach a place before, technically before you even leave it. <laughs> if you've got enough horses and enough... I love this idea that eventually people... It would be like train lines, that you just have a line of horses across the countryside that one person <laughs> just keeps hopping over. Now, like all of these things that we're going to talk about, they're all kind of brain teasers. I don't think any DM would actually allow this to happen. <laughs> because I mean, you run a game, all... would you? Yeah. I mean, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the deal. We all accept the reality disconnect that a round of combat is the same shared six seconds. So if a thousand people are doing one thing and they've all held their action to pass the spear along in that same six seconds, you build up this ridiculous amount of speed in a very small amount of time and that inertia just causes massive damage <laughs> for some reason which okay i see why people would argue that to be the case but if you are going to suspend the disbelief that everything happens in six seconds you kind of have to suspend the belief in physics as well <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah <laughs> and I, I do love this idea that when physicists in particular, because there is this <laughs> massive crossover between general science nerds and D&D <laughs> nerds when they think, you know what, I can break this. I can break this game and there's nothing the rules say that can do to stop me. Because <laughs> if you and like, what, how do I say this? If you are going to talk about physics and inertia, Newton's first law of motion I was a physics major for a little while, so I oh, actually know I'm a little so bit about Oh, I'm so glad this. you're here. I had someone explain the peasant railgun to me as what happens when physics nerds try to break the game. Yes. <laughs> yes. I started as a physics major, ended up in theater. You figure it out. So <laughs> the first law of motion, an object at rest stays at rest. And an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed and the same direction unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. By the very nature of people passing a spear, they're not maintaining any inertia. They are constantly changing it. By handing it off to someone who then grabs it and they're a little bit taller or their hand is a little bit rougher or they're wearing gloves or whatever, you're adding friction, you're changing the way gravity is affecting it, you're changing the momentum involved. It changes everything so much so quickly that 
it might as well just be thrown by the guy at the end of the line anyway. Because it's all going to cancel out, right? You know, forces don't <laughs> actually keep objects moving. In fact, they are diametrically opposed to that. Like if you set a book down, it doesn't just stay down on its table. Gravity is still acting on it. But the force of the structure of the table is stronger than that of gravity. So that's why the book doesn't fall through the table. I mean, there's atoms and molecular structure and bonds and stuff in there too. But in terms of forces, <laughs> the force from the table is preventing it from going to the ground because it's sturdier, even though gravity is still pulling it down onto the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is really nerdy. <laughs> I mean, but like you, we have, yeah, we have to get down to this level of abstraction to discuss this particular concept because D&D as a game was not built for realism. It was built for balance. And right. uh, the fringes where those two things overlap is where we get things like the peasant railgun. Has this shown up in a game that you've played or run? To smaller degrees, people have been like, <laughs> if I hold my turn to throw him and he holds his turn to throw me, and if he <laughs> jumps on me and I jump on him, can we get high enough to reach the thing? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Every one of you has to make a DC 18 acrobatics check to pull this off every single one of you <laughs> and only if you all succeed does this work otherwise people are gonna get hurt <laughs> oh so like, man so like no i would not let like a peasant railgun happen <clears throat> but if people want to work together to achieve something plausible yeah okay you know <laughs> we're talking about a game that has floating eyeballs and dragons and squid-headed terrors of the night <laughs> physics is relative which actually is true in our world as well so. <laughs> it's, it's, at least it's consistent <laughs> one of the things that always bothered me about that whole thing is that people immediately assume that like logic and physics work out in their favor if i was dming that and someone was like oh that's what we're gonna do i'd be like okay cool you just pass it down. Nothing happens, guys. So, I don't yeah, know what technically, you're expecting. Technically, like at least to keep now, now, nowadays with fifth edition, you could use a free action to hand it, and then a reaction to hand it to the next person. So that is you're handing it between two people over six seconds, and so uh -huh. it's not going to go that fast at all. The problem <laughs> with it is is simple. Is okay. You're assuming that that item is moving at that speed. I'm going to make you roll for every one of those peasants to grab that thing now. <laughs> You've made my life hell. Now I want you to roll 5,000 D20s. Enjoy. Uh, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to get faster and worse. And eventually, mm -hmm. it's going to catch one of those peasants <laughs> and then just decimate the entire area because of you. Because of you. So what about like having to actually pay and organize that, that peasant railgun, though? I mean, it would lining them up like that. It would be a All fun right. idea, but what go. is the point? <laughs> what is what is the point at that point in time? Just have them fight. So I guess <laughs> let him fight. <laughs> yeah, if you have an entire army of people and you're like, I need a railgun in order to obliterate this army, oh, just have I the see. peasants fight. I mean, <laughs> yeah. come instead on. of lining up ten thousand peasants and having them pass a spear down the line, just have them. <laughs> Just, just, just give them some spears. <laughs> exactly. You're going to save money. 
<sighs> well, and then you have to work out like the lining of things. Like that last guy can't doesn't have any time to like line up the shot before he shoots. shoots. Not only that, but you have to explain <laughs> that entire premise to five thousand people. <laughs> True. I, I work with people and I only work with three other people and they can't do basic things half the time. Yeah. So which way is the spirit? Is it going that way? Because I want to make sure that I'm passing it right. I don't want to pass it wrong. Yeah. I turned it Just... around. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I grabbed the tip too soon. I thought it wasn't my turn. I'm sorry. <laughs> And they have to all hold initiative too. That that yes, oh, it's, yes. it's very this very is complex. Why in my games, if you find a cheese, you get to use the cheese once, and then you never get to use the cheese ah, again. As sort of a treat for for you, <laughs> for you and putting in the to effort. Be, to... Exactly, it has to be a new cheese. If I look up your cheese online <laughs> and I find your cheese, I'm sorry. So I, I think that it harkens back to three five in particular because at that time. Everyone viewed DMs as like an adversary uh, and DMing as an uh, adversarial process, mm -hmm. whereas 5e isn't. It, it's more cooperative. Yeah. Like in 3.5, mm -hmm. I'm trying to stop the players. The players are trying to stop me, the DM. In hmm. 5e, you don't have that. That's Unless fascinating. That kind of DM. Yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to break myself of that habit just because I, I started out playing where I assumed the DM was the bad guy. And so when I was the DM, I wanted to be the bad guy and thwart my players instead of helping them. I'm like, what the hell's the point of that? Hmm. If your players come up with something good, give it to them. That's <laughs> absolutely what you should do. Yeah. If they outsmart your traps, good. That's literally the point. That is <laughs> what you wanted from them. <laughs> I want to ask, because you have played older editions, so much of what these exploits gets at is the relationship between the DM and their players. Yeah. And I have heard that older editions had a somewhat more adversarial relationship as the DM. Is that your experience? I would say yes, but only because that would have been the dynamic that a lot of the, the younger groups have. And the older editions were aimed at a lot of younger players that those players are still playing now. I think a lot of those <laughs> players have matured and they may still have the adversarial nature to it. But there was a somewhat... I mean, you said adversarial. That's probably the best word. That The DM was trying to kill the players. <laughs> and I think occasionally that was just because the older editions were harsher. It wasn't that you were trying to kill the players. It's just they were a lot less forgiving when it came to errors and mistakes that if you failed to save, there was a chance that you would just die flat out. And that wasn't the DM trying to kill you. It was just the situation. It's like, we they wanted you to know that you're in an incredibly deadly world. I'm just reading Appendix N by um, Peter Bergagel, which is a collection of all the, some of the short stories that inspired Gygax originally. Oh, yeah. And one of them is a Robert E. Howard, uh, The Tower of the Elephant which is very, very Dungeons and Dragons. It's Conan. I think one of the first Conan the Barbarian stories of him breaking into this tower and he goes in with a master thief who dies flat out. Like he just trips a trap and he's dead. Basically just failed to save and throw and died immediately. And this was someone who you could theoretically say is like a level 10 character because he's quite skilled up until that point. But it's that idea that some things, that your character is fragile. And I think mm. that's what older editions were trying to get the sense of that you can be very powerful you can have all the magic in the world but if you are incautious if you don't really 
notice everything around you if you don't think like you actually would in that situation the world can kill you with a in a heartbeat but i do also feel that there were a number of dungeon masters who went this is a great way of ruining all the friends fun this is just me versus them i'm i've got all the monsters the monster on my side i want to smash them but they are powerful too and they'll be able to smash me back so it became more like getting the action figures and smashing them together like a transformers movie and i don't see anything wrong with that style of play i think that can be really fun there are a number of times where i've run games like that where i'm just like i'm gonna throw a dragon at you at fifth level let's see if you can take it let's see what happens But yeah, I think older editions were certainly more suited to that sort of play. And I think exploits certainly like this one would be ones that players in those games would want to come up with. It's like kind of defeating the dungeon master through the rules is more of a puzzle than just defeating the monsters. This episode of Making a Monster is brought to you by The Book of Extinction, a bestiary of extinct animals resurrected for the world's greatest role-playing game. Inside are the stranger-than-fiction true stories of animals now completely gone from the world, alongside game statistics as fantasy monsters. The first three of those monsters are available now. You can pay what you want for them, and every penny will support endangered species and habitat preservation through the Center for Biological Diversity. Learn more at scintilla.studio slash extinction. That's S-C-I-N-T-I-L-L-A dot studio slash extinction. Well, talking of DMs, let's talk about the Quantum Ogre. I encountered this idea of the Quantum Ogre quite a long time ago when I was looking at, I think it was a second edition, a creative campaigning book where they just talk about, you know, game design in general and how to plan adventures and how to organize your encounters, essentially. And the Quantum Ogre is the idea that no matter where the party goes, no matter what route they take, they're always going to encounter an ogre. (laughs) Like they can go by the waterfall, they can go through the woods, they can go, they can organize a cart and to take them to the capital. Doesn't matter where they go, there's going to be an ogre on the way. (laughs) And sometimes that ogre might be swimming in the, in the river. That ogre might be coming down the mountain. That ogre might just be lying in wait. Sometimes if it's poorly planned, that ogre might just be standing in the middle of the road waiting for them. (laughs) But it is something that I uh, I feel that is probably because I am a professional dungeon master. I'm having to prep a lot of games uh, a lot of the time. And sometimes it's a lot easier just to have an, a, an encounter ready. And it's usually when you're traveling from one place to another. It could be anywhere. It could be going through a dungeon. But it's an event. It's an encounter that the dungeon master needs to happen for whatever reason. But where it occurs is less important. Uh, it just needs to be somewhere so the quantum ogre to me is essentially like you have a monster in your head that the party needs to fight for one reason or another and it doesn't matter what the party chooses to do where they choose to go they're going to fight that monster from what i know of quantum ogre it is essentially similar to schrodinger's cat this is something that will happen no matter what it is this ogre exists and does not exist (laughs) and as a dm I don't care if an ogre wouldn't naturally be here. You're fighting an ogre now. It is a form of Schrodinger's cat, yeah. (laughs) Which, if any of your listeners don't know, is the idea that if you lock a cat in a box with a vial of poison that is set to go off at a random time, at 
any point in time, the cat can be thought of as both alive and dead. I think you might be one of the people who's most qualified to answer why it's called the quantum ogre specifically. Well, so in in physics, the idea of quantum state or quantum flux is that something exists everywhere in every possible way until it's observed. Because you don't know until it's observed. And so that's the idea with this ogre. It could be anywhere and everywhere until it's triggered by the DM. So that's really the idea of it. Yeah, quantum does seem to be one of those words that's almost like a free pass, like a get out of jail free card for science fiction writers. Like put quantum mm -hmm. in front of it. That makes it cool and interesting. But I feel like we've, this is one of those cases in which it's applied in the sense in which it's understood in physics. Is that right? I believe it is, yeah. There's a great line in a Futurama episode, actually, (laughs) where they're watching like races of like quantum sized horses or something like that. And they announce, oh, this guy is the winner. And Professor Farnsworth goes crazy. He's like, ah, you changed the results by observing them. That's not fair. (laughs) Which is exactly what happens in quantum (laughs) physics. And uh, this is part and parcel with a conversation about railroading as a DM, which I'm sure we could do an entire podcast on. Given that uh, railroading is reducing player agency, how much do you rely on the quantum ogre? And and if you do, then then what's the argument there? D&D is hard. The more I play, the more I talk about it, the more I talk to other people about it and have new perspectives on it and have discussions like this, the more I'm like, man, to do it consistently well for however many people you have around the table is hard and this is one of those things that makes it hard is trying to understand where you can or where you should do something like the quantum ogre as a dm and this it's one of these things that comes with funnily enough experience and knowing when it's okay to do it knowing when your players might spot it but knowing that they'll be okay because they trust you as a dm that it kind of makes sense and they're okay to go with the journey on you and don't go oh you you know kick up a fuss when in reality you're all there for a good story and you've got to trust the dm to give you a good story that is the nuance that is just so outside of my uh, you know you need decades and decades of actively doing these things to really be able to have a good take on any given situation when you might need to utilize the quantum ogre um so that is my get out of jail free card (laughs) (laughs) no i love it how can anybody do that consistently all the time (laughs) and make these micro macro decisions that have micro macro impacts Ooh, the what when you're trying to manage the expectations of however many people, including your own at the table, it's difficult. And it's my main defense to any player ever is like the thing you're doing might seem easy, <laughs> but in reality, it's hard. So if you're having fun, like well done, <laughs> it's hard. And and the, and the quantum ogre is a very 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 good example of what makes it hard. For us. And people argue that oh, it takes away player agency, and it alters the true like idea of free will and choice within the game. And to a degree, I agree with that sentiment, but also there are things that just need to happen in a game. Otherwise you're just going to be narrating a bunch of NPCs at a bar every game session, (laughs) you know? So I do use quantum ogres for specific plot points. For like random encounters, I don't do that kind of stuff. Like if they're 
smart about how they travel through the wilderness or through the town or the track bad guy or whatever they're doing. If they're smart about it and they roll well, I'm going to reward that. And sometimes they don't even need to roll. Like if they come up with a brilliant idea, just like in their head, <laughs> and they're like, oh, we want to use this crazy thing that I know exists. And I'm like, you know, that's real world enough. And you obviously know what you're talking about. So <laughs> sure, it works. It just works. Because, you know, I didn't think of that. But specific plot point, creatures, monsters, NPCs, bad guys, whatever. I think they really need to be fought or at least encountered. Maybe maybe they can talk them down or convince them to help them or whatever they're going to do. So I don't use them in the like, you have to fight and kill this thing. I'm like, you have to encounter it. I feel like it's yeah. just natural because sometimes when you're DMing, it is nice to prepare. And if your players are like, well, no, we're going to go on the <laughs> fly and do something completely different, then... What, what am I supposed to do? You asked me to come in. You've asked me to run a game. I'm trying to play a game that's fun for you. I have all of the stat blocks for this specific thing. I had the entire fight planned out. Guys, we're going in that direction. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. It's it's not meant to be mean. It's just I, I think that sometimes you as a DM get stuck in these. Well, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm bad about that. I think a lot of times <laughs> I do, where I, I draw... So I, I'm terrible when it comes to DMing because I plan nothing. And then I just will randomly grab stuff. But when I did plan things, this is what I would do. And then people would get mad about, well, I don't want to have to fight that. They wouldn't be in here. What is a sand dragon doing in the middle of the ocean? I, I don't know, guys. <laughs> you tell me yeah. why it's there. I can't. That's what I had. Yeah. That's what I got. <laughs> I, I told yeah. you where the campaign was starting. You guys decided to board a boat. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> What do you guys want from me? <laughs> yeah, I think that the Quantum Ogre is, is something that every DM does at least once because you guys got this really cool encounter and I really want to do it. But sometimes players are difficult because they they decide to do what they want to. I think it's, again, the, the, the part of that adversarial role is that you as a DM have set the limits and now I'm going to test them mm -hmm. and I'm going to push the boundaries on that and make it so that way it's fun for me. Uh, because you've said, hey, this is where we're going. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm going to make it more difficult for you to do what you have planned. The Quantum Ogre does tend to get a bad rap in it, for exactly the same reasons that railroading or the idea of like leading the players along an adventure path in this supposedly open world game that prioritizes player choice. We've brought up a couple of reasons why railroading might not deserve the reputation that it gets. As a player, I try to actively railroad other players. I was going to say, I, I, <laughs> I, as a player, I try and cooperate with the DM as much as possible. Steve will, um, we played in a Pathfinder game where, you know, there's this basin of obviously cursed water and, ooh, look at this basin of obviously cursed water. And we're like, yeah, we're not going to do anything with that. Thanks, bye. <laughs> and Steve was like, you know what? Not only am I going to drink out of it, I'm going to bathe in it. <laughs> <laughs> Splash it on my face, clean myself up. But I think that I, I tend to be rewarded for doing that. Like the DM is understanding and makes my character not more of an integral part of everything, but lets me in on like details, you know, like because I went through and I drank that water and I learned all of the stuff about that cursed water and the curse that was put on me, it gave the DM the ability to use me as a vessel to help further mm. the plot, mm -hmm. which made me an integral part of the story 
even though I didn't actually matter. Yeah. It just, I think that you have to do that sometimes. Railroading is not as bad as everyone makes it out to be. I think it, it is okay to try and test the limits of your world and see where the edge is and find where the horizon is and see where, you know, everything drops out. But then also be willing to play in the space that you're given. Just because it's a sandbox doesn't mean you need to, you know, see every corner of it. You, you can play in the world. It, it, you can cooperate. I think railroading also gets a bad rap because uh, there are people who railroad wrong mm. in, in that I can railroad you by giving you the option of choice like Quantum Ogre. You can go left or you can go right, but either way you are still going straight. I have only actually prepared this one path, but I'm pretending that you can actually branch out and do other things. There are some people who go, no, it's this one thing, no matter what, I'm not going to show you any any form of, of choice. And if your character walks south, then they'll die because uh, yeah. your actual direction you guys need to go is north. So you can't physically walk south anymore sometimes if your dm is building on your backstories and creating a world involving you it doesn't feel like you're being railroaded you're obviously being manipulated they're obviously using your entire story to make the story about you and taking away some of your agency but you don't feel that way because you're invested whereas other dms you know make everything about them Right. Yeah. So so the better version of this is lead me to the plot rather than, um, you know, uh, force the plot on me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of it's a kind of game design jujitsu. I think. Yeah, because yeah, uh, you will run into players who are problematic and don't want the plot thrust upon them no matter what, who are like, well, I'm a loner. And I'm not a part of anything, and I don't have a reason to be here. Right, in a game about You have to give dynamics. me something, man. Just yeah. one little thing. Yeah. I call it if buying you... the ticket. <laughs> That's good. No, I, I get where people see as a railroady thing, because it basically yeah. is, it's taking away that player agency of, it doesn't matter which direction we go, we're still going to encounter the ogre. I don't always see that as true. Because if... You, it's always that I leave it as the doubt. It's like if you'd taken the road, maybe you wouldn't have encountered the bandits, but you did, you took the ocean, so you encountered the pirates instead. And it's the same, same encounter, but mechanically, why? Anyway. Mechanically, it's the same encounter, but the reasons why it's happening is always different. Um, and I do like to see it in a little bit. Like, you don't just have them out of nowhere. If somebody says, oh, yeah, we need to go by boat, it's like, oh, you better watch out for the pirates then. It's like, yeah, you go to encounter the pirates. Because that's kind of yeah. what you'd expect. Yeah, that's Chekhov's gun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let, let them know that there might be pirates ahead of time. and Which the, is essentially the same as being like, there's going to be pirates. <laughs> yeah. And again, if they Fantastic. choose the road, it's like, well, watch out for bandits. And honestly, you probably would say that no matter what. <laughs> because right. the chances are there might be bandits. Yep. This is a dangerous world. Yeah. And uh, it will eat you. Yeah. The example uh, I had in, in this instance, it was the destination, a uh, end of a waterfall. My players misin misinterpreted a map. They could have gone down path A, which is the correct, in air quotes, path, <laughs> or they could have gone down path B, which is anywhere else in the world. And they <laughs> misinterpreted the admittedly poorly uh, drawn map that I provided them, and they went down path B. And my quandary then as a DM was like, okay, well, 
do they just wander aimlessly for the next however many hours in game but then that's then the world is real and they've just been lost and that kind of makes sense and it's punishment for them and it makes sense and they use resources which is like an encounter in of itself and all these other things are spinning around but then on the other on the other but then on the other hand, it's like, that's boring. And that's maybe that's not really fun. Maybe they won't enjoy that kind of play style. And maybe it doesn't really add anything to the game that they've got lost for four hours. And maybe I should just give them that sense of achievement that they have found the right way. In the end, I erred on my, my first response, which was, no, you just get lost in this hot, sweaty jungle that's gross and you're tired and you want to go home until you realize eventually couple of successful checks a couple of successful hours later you've gone the wrong way backtrack you go uh, and the players <laughs> learn a lesson i suppose which is <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to making a monster if this episode has entertained or enlightened you in any way please share it with the people who play D with you your recommendation will go a long way to helping people trust me with their time and attention and it's a real gift to me and the creators i feature you can also leave me a like or a five-star review on Spotify, iTunes, or your podcast player of choice. It's a small thing, but it really does help new listeners discover the show. If you really like what I'm doing, you can support me through the Book of Extinction, a project I'm creating with Mage Hand Press that enables D&D players to make a real difference in the climate crisis and rapidly accelerating mass extinction by telling the stories of the animals that we have already lost. There are already five episodes of Making a Monster about the creatures in that book, so set this podcast feed to newest first and take a journey with me into a world wilder and more fascinating than you probably thought it could be. Special thanks to my collaborators on these Exploit Monsters episodes. I'm Jeremy Vine. I'm a professional dungeon master. You can find me on social media on Twitter at Talamin, T-A-L-U-M-I-N, or you can listen to my podcasts. Tell me about your D&D character, which is on SoundCloud, or D&D and TV, which is on Podbean. My name is Jared Jehoda, and you can find me on any podcast platform under Mid-Level Adventurers. I'm one half of the creative team. Matt is the other half. Or you can catch Matt and I on Newly Forged, which is our Twitch stream D&D game. Uh, it's a homebrew game set in a post-apocalyptic magical world. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, at MidLVLAdventure to keep updated. And we've recently started releasing our podcast episodes on YouTube as well. I'm Danilo, the host, producer, editor of Thinking Critically, a D&D discussion podcast where we take a single word or topic and discuss what it means in the D&D and wider TTRPG framework. That has been going on now for almost 65 episodes and a year and a bit weekly drops everything from your esoteric left field weird things that you would never attribute to D&D all the way to encounters and experience and much more obvious topics including soft skills such as friendship and social and meta things such as podcasts which was a weird self <laughs> navel, navel gazing one to record <laughs> hello i'm rebecca and i'm steven and we are from a house civis broadcasting eberron a chronicle of echoes podcast it's a very different kind of podcast we're a little bit scripted a little bit improv and a whole lot of fun so we hope that you'll stop in and check us out and find out what it's like when D&D meets radio. We'll be back next week. See you then.